ways we have without the radio. Joseph Goebbels. I hope I'm saying that right. You will find out later that the radio is a very important um, object of symbolism throughout the entire book. over a low table covered entirely with a model. The model 
deals with it and contains scale replicas of the hundreds of houses and shops and hotels within its walls. There is a cathedral with its perforated spire and the bulky old Chateau de Saint-Malo and row after row of seaside mansions studded with chimneys. A slender wooden jetty arcs out from a peach called the Blade de Mole. A delicate, reticulated atrium vaults over the seafood market. Minute benches, the smallest no larger than apple seeds, dot the tiny public squares. Marie Lore runs her fingertips along the centimeter-wide parapet, crowning the ramparts, drawing an uneven star shape around the entire model. She finds the opening atop the walls where four ceremonial cam cannons point to the scene, Bastien de la Hande. She whispers, and her fingers walk down a little staircase, Rue de Cordier, Rue Jacket Carcher. In a corner of the room stand two galvanized buckets, filled to the rim with water. Fill them up, her great-uncle had taught her, whenever you can. The bathtub is on the third floor, too. Who knows when the water will go out again? Her fingers back, travel back to the cathedral spire, south to the gates of Danon. All evening she has been marching her fingers around the model, waiting her for her great-uncle Etienne, who owns this house, who went out the previous night while she slept, and who has not returned. And now it is night again, another revolution of the clock, and the whole block is quiet, and she cannot sleep. Britain waiters in bow ties polishing glasses behind its bar. 
It offered 21 guest rooms, commanding sea views, and a lobby fireplace as big as a truck. Parsons on weekend holidays would drink apparatus here, and before then the occasional emissary from the Republic, ministers and vice ministers and abbots and admirals, and in the centuries before them, wind-burned corsairs, killers, plunderers, raiders, seamen. Before that, before it was ever a hotel at all, five full centuries ago, it was the home of a wealthy privateer who gave up raiding ships to study peace in the pastures outside St. Malo, scribbling in notebooks and eating honey straight from combs. The crest above the door that tells still have bumblebees carved into the oak. The ivy-covered fountain in the courtyard is shaped like a hive. Werner's favorites are five faded frescoes on the ceilings of the grandest upper rooms, where bees as big as children float against blue backdrops. Big lazy drones and workers with diaphanous rings wear above a hexagonal bathtub, a single nine-foot-long queen with multiple eyes and a golden furred abdomen curls across the ceiling. Over the past four weeks, the hotel has become something else. A fortress. A detachment of Austrian anti-airmen has boarded up every window, overturned every bed. They have reinforced the entrance, packed the stairwells with crates of artillery shells. The hotel's fourth floor, or garden rooms with the French balconies, French balconies, open directly onto the ramparts, has become home to an and to an aging high-velocity anti-air gun, Golden 88, that can fire 21 and a half pound shells nine miles. Her Majesty, the Austrians call their cannon, and for the past week these men have tended to do it, the way worker bees might tend to a queen. They fed her oils, repainted her barrel, lubricated her wheels. They've arranged sandbags at her feet like offerings. The royal adnant, a deathly monarch meant to protect them all. Werner is in the stairwell, halfway to the ground floor, when the 88 fires twice in quick succession. It is the first time he's heard a gun at such close range, and it sounds as if the top half of the hotel has torn off. He stumbles and throws his arms over his ears. The walls were perforating all the way down at the, into the foundation. They then back up. Werner can hear the Austrians two floors up, scrambling, reloading, and the receding screams above the shells as they hurtle above the ocean, already two or three miles away. One of the soldiers, he realizes, is singing. Or maybe it is more than one. Maybe they are all singing. Eight Luftwaffe men, none of whom will survive the hour, singing a love song to their queen. Werner chases the beam of his field light through the, lo to the, through the lobby. The big gun detonates a third time, and glass shatters somewhere close by, and torrents of soot rattle down the chimney, and the walls of the hotel toll like a struck bell. Werner worries that the sound will not 
St. Dumelo. Up and down the lanes, the last unevacuated townspeople wake, groan, sigh. Spinsters, prostitutes, men over 60, procrastinators, collaborators, disbelievers, drunks, nuns of every order, the poor, the stubborn, the blind. Some are at bomb shelters. Some tell, tell themselves it is merely a drill. Some linger to grab a blanket or a prayer book or a deck of playing cards. D-Day was two months ago. Cherbourg has been liberated. Jane liberated. Rennes too. Half of western France is free. In the east, the Soviets have retaken Minsk. The, po the Polish Home Army is revolting in Warsaw. A few newspapers have become bold enough to suggest that the tide has turned. But not here. Not this last citadel at the edge of the continent, this final German strongpoint on the Britain coast. Here, people whisper, the Germans have renovated two kilometers of subterranean corridors under the medieval walls. They have built new defenses, new conduits, new escape routes, underground complexes of bewildering intricacy. Beneath the peninsular fort of La Cité, across the river from the old city, there are rooms of bandages, rooms of ammunition, even an underground hospital, or so it is believed. There is air conditioning, a 200,000 liter water tank, a direct line to Berlin. There are flames throwing booby traps, a net of pillboxes with periscopic sights. They have stockpiled enough ordnance to spray shells into the sea all day, every day, for a year. Here, they whisper, are a thousand Germans ready to die? Or five thousand, maybe more. St. Mallow. Water surrounds the city on four sides. Its link to the rest of France is tenuous. A causeway, a bridge, a spit of sand. We are Mallowans first, say the people of St. Mallow. Britons next. French, if there's anything left over. In stormy light, its granite glows blue. At the highest tides, the sea creeps into basements at the very center of town. At the lowest tides, the barnacled ribs of a thousand shipwrecks stick out over the sea. For three thousand years, this little promontory has known sieges, but never like this. A grandmother lifts a, fu a fussy toddler to her chest. A drunk urinating in an alley outside St. Servan. A mile away, plucks a sheet of paper from a hedge. Urgent message to the inhabitants of this town. It says, depart immediately to open country. Anti-air batteries flash on the outer islands, and the big German guns inside the old city send another round of shells howling over the sea. And 380 Frenchmen imprisoned on an island fortress called National, a quarter mile off the beach, huddle in a moonlit courtyard bearing up. Four years of occupation and the roar of upcoming and oncoming bombers is the roar of front, deliverance, exurbation. The clack-clack of small 